Welcome back to The Podvocate. Today we are joined by Professor Spencer Waller, who is Loyola Law's antitrust expert. Today we are going to have Professor Waller speak to a little bit about the antitrust of big tech and why this has become um, such a big movement here in the United States recently. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so, Professor Waller, welcome. We're, uh, we're really glad to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. So uh, before we jump into the topic, if you could just give our listeners a little bit of background as to who you are and what makes you an authority on this topic. Uh, sure. Thank you. Um, so I've been teaching at the law school since 2000. And um, I, before I went into full-time teaching, I practiced law for eight years. I began with a clerkship at the Seventh Circuit, where I worked on a $3 billion antitrust case, among other things. Uh, from there, I went to the antitrust division of the Justice Department. These were in the Reagan years. I worked at the Foreign Commerce section, where we worked on international cartels, mergers, other investigations, other kind of policy issues. Problem um, was, during the Reagan years, got to work on fascinating issues that just simply never went anywhere. Um, so I went and switched within the Justice Department to the Organized Crime Strike Force, came back to Chicago, tried those cases, went into private practice, spent several years doing a variety of civil and criminal cases, a number of which involved antitrust, and I went into teaching in 1990. Given the way teaching works, I took the first offer that I got, and I spent 10 years at Brooklyn Law School. I grew up in Chicago. I was thrilled when Loyola reached out to me to come back uh, and teach at the law school and take over our Institute for Consumer Antitrust Studies, which I still head up. And since 2000, over the last almost 20 years, I teach, I write, direct our institute, and get involved on the sort of the public side of um, the different controversies that antitrust speaks to. So I was not exaggerating at all when I said that you are Loyola Law's resident expert on antitrust. Like many law schools, there's always one of us, and there's rarely more than one of us. Well, uh, we are obviously very lucky to have you today. Just jumping right in to the overarching concept of antitrust, what is it about antitrust law um, that, that gives foundation for a suit to be brought? So um, let me give you just a little historical background. Um, it's sort of a weird historical accident that we call this area of the law antitrust. It deals with uh, cartels, monopolies, and mergers. There's sort of three legs to the antitrust stool. Cartels are the most egregious example of, of agreements between competitors that can harm competition, price fixing, bid rigging, dividing of markets. Monopolization law deals with the bad behavior of powerful single companies, not working you know, in agreement with anybody, but a, a, a truly dominant firm. We're going to talk about it, but things like Amazon, uh, Google, Microsoft back in the day, AT&T before that, et cetera. And then the third uh, idea is why wait for something to grow up to mature into bad agreements or monopolization? They're mergers that have the potential to harm competition. In general, we want to block them before they develop into even bigger problems. The historical misnomer is that in the 19th century, many of these cartels and monopolies and mergers were organized in the form of a trust, like in trust and estates law. So the law that dealt with this to stop this was called antitrust law. Outside the U.S., 
much younger laws usually refer to it as competition law, which makes more sense and I think is simply easier to wrap your head around. Especially in the context of Amazon and Facebook and Google, which obviously we're going to jump into, but in these markets where it feels like you know today there might not be much competition. Yes, exactly. You know, you've, you've mentioned these sort of three branches of which these antitrust laws apply. Who's in charge of enforcing them and at what point do they actually become enforced? We have a very decentralized system in the United States. You get a different answer in the 130-some countries that have uh, antitrust today. In the United States, you have two federal agencies, one of which is the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department that I worked for back in the day. The Antitrust Division is the sole enforcer of the criminal aspects of antitrust that is limited to hardcore cartel activity, price fixing between competitors, and equivalent agreements. And that area of the law is not controversial. If they can find it and they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, the, the people go to jail and usually do for anywhere between two and five years, depending on the, how much money is involved in the role of the people in the conspiracy. So uh, the government, the Justice Department, Antitrust Division brings those cases. They also bring civil cases uh, where there's no fine, there's no imprisonment, but they're seeking to stop the behavior. So if you go back 20 years, they brought the uh, case against Microsoft with state attorneys general in a coalition. But the Justice Department took the lead, was seeking to break up Microsoft and change its behavior. Uh, that's a monopolization case. And then they bring merger cases. The second federal agency is the Federal Trade Commission. It was formed later around 1914, and they enforce uh, all aspects of the antitrust laws except the criminal area, because that, that's DOJ only. Sure. So you have two federal agencies competing to enforce the laws about competition. In addition, I alluded to the, the state attorneys general. All 50 states, uh, District of Columbia and the territories, have their own local attorneys general who have their own local antitrust laws and some group of people who enforce them within the, the, the AG's office. In a large state like California, or New York, you could have 20 or 30 people. Uh, they could have one or two PhD economists to assist them. In Illinois, we have usually about five full-time lawyers. And in small states, you might have one lawyer who does both antitrust and consumer protection. They bring cases in uh, state court involving local things that violate the antitrust laws. And they also have the authority to represent natural persons, humans, not corporations, in federal court under the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act. Um, they work together in coalitions because if you're investigating Google, uh, no single state's going to have the resources to take that on. So you may have heard something like 48 states are, are looking at Google or Amazon, and depending on, on, and then they can bring cases with the government if they wish. Now, in addition, you have private litigation. And for reasons we can talk about, 95% um, of the antitrust laws uh, cases are brought by private parties oftentimes class actions, sometimes, you know, individual companies will sue each other. So you've mentioned a lot there yeah. for availability of protecting consumer, the, the end goal, of course, being to protect the consumer and um, shield them from price fixing and make the market as robust as possible. If there are two federal agencies that are sort of competing here, as well as state attorneys general that are also responsible, why isn't there something like, say, the CFPB that's designed to protect consumers on an individual level why doesn't that necessarily translate into antitrust law? You mean having a sort of a single agency, um, having a primary role? Um, I think outside the United States, uh, that has been the model where there is a, a public single agency. Sometimes those agencies enforce both the antitrust laws and the consumer laws, like the FTC. Sometimes it's just one or the other. That's just the tradition outside the United States. Uh, why we do it this way, 
historical accident, primarily. I don't think anybody would necessarily come up with that many players in a multi-party game if we were doing it from scratch. So you, you also mentioned that 95% of these cases are coming from individuals or class actions. Is that a product of the inability of these government entities to bring those suits? Or is it more so a product of efficiency on the part of the consumer to just handle it themselves? Well, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, as I said, uh, you know, a criminal case, uh, the, you know, the, the individuals will go to jail. Uh, normally, if they're convicted, the companies, you can't send them to jail literally. You can put them on probation. You can fine them. And they're very heavy fines for these criminal violations. Outside of the criminal enforcement of the antitrust laws, there's um, no mechanism under federal antitrust law to get money back in the pockets of consumers. The companies may be punished, an individual is going to go away, they may be barred from doing it again, but if you want actual damages, restitution, etc., you sort of have to take action yourself, and the law incentivize it. Going back to 1890, Sherman Act all the way to the present, uh, any person business or individual who's harmed in their business or property can sue for triple damages and attorney's fees and costs. And that is obviously a tremendous incentive. Uh, and then the reason why class actions are important is, let's say there's a uh, price-fixing conspiracy involving gel pens. This is a podcast you can't see my gel pen. <laughs> but it's a Pilot G2, the, the champagne of gel pens. It's a really classy, well-rounded pen. Yeah. So let's assume that there's a price-fixing conspiracy by all the manufacturers of gel pens. Hypothetical, I have no reason to believe this is true. Uh, they could be very successful. They could jack the price of this pen up from a dollar-ish to a dollar twenty or thirty, and really could have a tremendous amount of harm spread out over the economy: school districts, businesses, individuals, the stores like um, uh, Office Depot, etc. You know that stock these things. Sure. Um, however, very few people would have much of a individual economic incentive to bring that case. Even Loyola, which must buy uh, dozens, hundreds, or thousands of these things a year, when you total up the overcharge of 10, 20 cents per pen, it's just not enough money to care only a, a fanatic or a lunatic would probably sue by themselves. But when you combine all these small uh, damage um, uh, plaintiffs into a, a class of people who've been similarly affected by, a, say, a nationwide conspiracy, that's enough money. And then when you have the possibility of triple damages, um, you have a very powerful weapon. And that's, in my view, that's why um, probably the majority of the cases are some version of a class action or a very, very large purchaser who's been harmed uh, by such conduct. So it, with, with this in mind, we have a, a really robust background of antitrust law in America going all the way back, as you mentioned, to 1890. Um, and if, if my research is correct, standard oil of, of the late 19th century, early 20th, 20th century being the textbook antitrust case where, you know, one powerful oil company takes over local state oil companies and the government sort of forces them to disband. Um, so now, as we have sort of segued into the 21st century, is it just that antitrust law has been lost or is it no longer mainstream? Um, where, where is it in today's lexicon of, of legal analysis that we're not really talking about it as much? Sure. So, you know, we're talking about a law that's been around for about 130 years and had some prior state law equivalents and some common law before that. But, you know, the Sherman Act and all the laws that have been passed since then have been from 1890 on. Very broadly worded, um, almost constitutional in breadth, largely filled in by court decisions like Standard Oil and all the other ones we, we, we cover in antitrust law in the class. The law has waxed and waned in different ways. Uh, 
the Supreme Court nearly crippled it. And you may remember this from your first year con law. There's a case called E.C. Knight where the Supreme Court said that manufacturing isn't commerce, the interstate commerce, and therefore the Sherman Act wouldn't apply to manufacturing, but only like literally a, a railroad that goes choo-choo across state right. lines. That's why all the early cases were railroads. So until you got to Standard Oil. So over time, I'm not going to bore you with the ups and downs. Um, the law has been stronger. The law has been weaker. The government, for usually good reasons and occasionally not so good reasons, uh, just uses its prosecutorial discretion to just do other things in the courtroom. So over the years, um, antitrust has gone up and down, both in terms of what cases have been brought and how much the public has been involved. Uh, one quick example, the election of, of 1912, where William Howard Taft was president, Teddy Roosevelt jumps in as a third party because he's angry at Taft, who was his, his successor, for not enforcing the antitrust laws, and Woodrow Wilson, who thinks that we need new statutes. Uh, had this three-way Donnybrook of a presidential campaign that really for the first time in history and kind of until now um, was the first time that you know, an actual president was chosen in large part on their views of how much concentration is too much, how much power is too much, are businesses acting badly or uh, just competitively, what do you do about it, what institutions do you need, should we break them up, all things that sound kind of uh, very uh, modern today. So it's just up and down. Now, the down started for uh, really in the late 1970s and really took over in the Reagan administration, where for a variety of sort of just pro-market ideological reasons, the Reagan administration changed the kind of cases that they brought and changed the number of cases that they brought and changed the remedies that they sought. Uh, by and large, they uh, didn't just take the position that um, bigness is not badness. They took the position that if it's big, it must be efficient, it must be good. Exactly. And uh, so, again, I think things are starting to change. We can talk about why, but this election is fascinating to me because it's the first time in you know, my professional lifetime that these issues are not just in the textbooks and in the law reviews, but are being uh, the subject of important bills in Congress, campaign platforms, uh, policy papers, not just Democrats, not just progressives. You know, the president uh, himself talks about various uh, uh, companies he'd like to break up or he thinks has too much power. And um, if you look at the front page of the New York Times front page and the New York Times front page of the business section, uh, this stuff and the people who bring these cases and talk about them and analyze them are suddenly uh, news. I'm not suggesting that it's what people are talking about sure. on, on the subway on their way into work. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's really part of uh, the political discourse. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, there are major candidates for the 2020 election. And um, it, for those that have listened to our podcast, we do our best to avoid uh, taking political positions. But, you know, it's it's being talked about, to your point, there are, are legitimate presidential candidates that have this as a major line item on their platforms. Um, and you off, also offered a, a perfect segue. So just to offer the listeners some background, um, Facebook has 2.4 billion, with a B, active monthly users. Amazon accounts for about 40% of all e-commerce spending in America. Um, Google gets more than 92% of global search engine inquiries. And obviously, we don't say go look something up online. We say Google it. Apple's the first company to cross a trillion dollars. I mean, there are all these statistics about these major big tech corporations. So setting aside for a second, uh, Amazon's, whatever you want to call it, inability or lack of desire or 
um, lack of accountability in terms of the taxes they aren't paying, do you think this is something that voters are really paying attention to? Or is this something that people specifically politicians are just bringing up as a as a talking point no I mean I think this is uh, this is uh, preceded the election but it but but it's really become front and center because all the candidates that, that you've talked about um, have uh, you know have started to talk about this in, in some way shape or form so it's not size but it is about power and we live in a world where we deal with um, reality that our economy is more concentrated than it used to be there are less startups than they used to be uh, there's more income inequality than there used to be, and there's a lack of choice uh, depending on the specific industry. And as a result, I think people are worried not necessarily about size, but about power and choice and uh, various forms of, of coercion. So, you know, these laws go back to 1890, but they're being applied to the dangerously powerful firms of each era. So back in the day, it was railroads. After that, it was Standard Oil, as you noted. After that, it became uh, the steel industry as being the target. Uh, then certain aspects of retail distribution, uh, the car industry, the early mainframe computers, you see where I'm going, then the phone network, then Microsoft, and now uh, mostly companies that uh, represent a platform of some kind, a digital platform that do various different things. And so there's just a lot of areas where one firm really dominates. And, and that, that's why the Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which prohibits monopolization, the law in the European Union and most other countries that uh, prohibits the abuse of a dominant position, which has some important, more powerful tools going for it, that's why these things are suddenly uh, in the news, in addition to the fact that Google's getting hit with something like six billion euro fines for a series of bad behavior, and the sense that nothing's happening in the United States on a par with what jurisdictions like Europe, Germany, um, and, and, and certain others around the world are really starting to take the lead away from the United States in an area of the law that we weren't the very, very first, but we were the, the pioneers of. So you're, you're taking the words out of my mouth. I mean, it's amazing that you, know, you alluded to this 8 billion euro fine that the European Union levied against Google. So even though the United States has these very old and robust laws, is it that we're behind in enforcing them and behind in understanding how to enforce them? Or is it more that we, we being the United States, have just actively chosen, you know, maybe since the Reagan era, as you alluded to, have we just actively chosen not to enforce them? Uh, well, you know, we've had an increasingly conservative Supreme Court in antitrust, and I think in general. And they've made it very, very hard. They have restricted certain theories that were accepted parts of antitrust. We don't have to get too technical for this purpose. But uh, our toolkit is relatively less well-stocked than that of the European Union. Their law is more robust. Uh, their remedies for things like monopolization are a little bit stronger. They've got theories that our Supreme Court has just rejected out of hand. Uh, and uh, they have the political will to enforce this. We, in the United States, for better or for worse, we've really not had a major monopolization case since Microsoft, which is now going on about 20 years, give or take, by the time the, the case petered out um, in, in that way. And so I do think we're behind in that area. We're ahead in others. Um, we bring more criminal cases than any other jurisdiction, and possibly most of them put together. There's pros and cons to that. but. Um, uh, this is an area of the law 
that we need better institutions, we need a better law, we need better remedies. Uh, for example, we talked about our agencies cannot impose fines in a civil case. Uh, and nobody brings a criminal monopolization case. You're not trying to put Bill Gates in jail. You're trying to right. stop Microsoft or Amazon from acting in a way that hurts competition and consumers and excludes rivals and abuses their dominance in a various way. So, you know, in Europe, they have a fine up to 10% of their worldwide annual turnover. And yes, Google can write a check for six, eight, 10, 50 billion euros, but it definitely gets their attention. And so, yes, they can prohibit certain conduct. We can prohibit certain conduct. They brought cases we haven't. When we've each brought similar cases, almost always, their remedies have been a little more um, prospectively stronger, perhaps backed up by the possibility of more of these fines. Uh, we've pulled back. They've taken action against Google, where we have done next to nothing in terms of the public um, enforcement of the laws against uh, uh, Google. So it's fascinating. You know, the, the Sherman Act theoretically is the seminal law for us to follow here. And in my limited study, admittedly, of the Sherman Act, one of the big components is that the actions of these companies must be unreasonable. So um, in the case of Bill Gates and Microsoft, like you said, we're not trying to put Bill Gates in jail, but it is unreasonable that uh, Bill Gates automatically install Internet Explorer on every PC in America across the globe. What is it about the actions of these big tech companies that have been unreasonable um, that has sort of created this new dialogue around breaking them up as monopolies? Yeah, um, so we're concerned, the antitrust communities or the competition law community around the world are concerned when any firm has a position of dominance, and that's a fact question, either you do or you don't, and you can have a, a debate whether Google does or doesn't have market power. They take the position that competition is only a click away. Um, and then in the real world, I mean, that's literally true, but if consumers never click away when they do search or remain in the Google suite of products, uh, then uh, the fact that it has something like 90% plus of the search engine results suggests that it has power. So if a firm is found to have power, monopoly power in the United States, a dominant position uh, in most countries around the world, you then have to ask the question, are they doing something that excludes competition or constitutes uh, like an exploitation of their dominance? In our law, we only care, the Supreme Court has just said for various technical reasons, we only care about excluding competition on reasons other than efficiency or having a better product. In Europe and most of the other jurisdictions, uh, you've broken the law if you've either excluded or exploited consumers or other people up and down the distribution chain as a result of your dominance. So we go into the fight with one set of theories just not available to us. Why does that matter? In Europe, they can, they don't do it very often, but they can go after a dominant firm for pricing too high. We don't. Our courts have taken the position that higher prices may show that you have power, um, but they don't exclude anybody. In fact, they tend to invite someone to come into the market because you're pricing too high. Maybe you can, you know, maybe somebody wants to take, take you on because they see an opportunity. So uh, from time to time, uh, the, the Europeans and other jurisdictions will just go after a dominant firm for saying you're pricing too high. We need to find some usually bad behavior that excludes competition in a way that ultimately would harm a consumer. So uh, for example, the Microsoft case was based on it, Microsoft was found liable 
uh, opposed to a very limited remedy in the United States. But with respect to computer operating systems, hard, hard drives of, of, you know, of desktops and, and even the early laptops, Microsoft had this sort of 90% market share. Um, it, it didn't matter whether you included Apple, I see you're using an Apple laptop, but um, back then it just wasn't a high enough share that it, it didn't matter whether you included or excluded them as part of the same market. And so, you know, what they do wrong? Now, you started to <coughs> um, talk about some things, but they did a lot of things, and the idea was they were trying to exclude from the market firms they saw as a competitor. Uh, uh, companies like um, Sun Microsystems, which made the Java programming language. Um, uh, other kinds of current and future competitors, particularly web-based competitors, where they saw that it was possible that the operating systems would migrate to the web and they would lose their monopoly over sort of the, the things that are pre-installed by, by original equipment manufacturers. And one of them was, uh, you know, they were really scared that uh, they were losing the early fight for web supremacy. So they were trying to exclude innovative competitors that they feared would eat their lunch and that this would harm consumers. Not really because they were overpaying, but because they were losing consumer choice, uh, quality, and, and, and really um, interfering with innovation because they had, they had the dominant system and why do they want to you know, let a, a new product um, come in and, and, and take away the same functionality of what they, they had the, the grip on the market. So that's the kind of question that we're asking about um, the uh, digital platforms that are under consideration. I'll, I'll give you one thing. It's not clear to me if this antitrust case in the 90s, if they had not been brought against Microsoft, it's not clear that Google would have ever had the breathing room to evolve uh, you know, and create a really terrific search product that eventually grew into um, a very dominant firm. So our law, and it's fine, I really don't, in general, have a problem with this, our law doesn't focus very much on how you acquire your, 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 your position, unless you do heinous things along the way. Sure. Um, <laughs> if you burn your competitor's factories to the ground, <laughs> uh, you have an arson problem as well as an antitrust <laughs> problem. Um, but you know, uh, what, the, what they're really saying is, fine, when you have power, are you continuing to compete hard on price, on quality, on innovation, and whatever else that consumers care about in your field? Uh, or are you doing things that just are there to um, preserve your power and prevent the next good idea from um, um, reaching a, its customer base in the marketplace? We're going to take a really quick break, uh, let that all digest. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Professor Waller if you would prefer that I search on Bing and use Yahoo as my email server. Welcome back, everybody. We are again joined by Professor Spencer Waller. Um, and so right before the break, Professor, um, we talked a little bit about you know, price fixing um, and these sort of market shares with Google dominating search engines, things like that. You have written about how private lawsuits need to be brought against big tech and how the government alone really just isn't going to be able to do enough um, to slow these companies down. So tell us a little bit more about that. So. We were talking a little bit about how our, we have a very decentralized um, enforcement system. We have two federal agencies, 50 attorney generals, and, and you know, theoretically anyone who's been injured in their business or property. And uh, that's a powerful group. You know, uh, companies are often concerned that there's you know, too many people who are able to go after them. Um, I, I'm concerned that um, you're not getting the right mix of public and private enforcers working together 
to address issues of, of um, divestiture, injunctions, monetary remedies for consumers in a particular case. I, and, and you know, it's largely a factual question whether there's too much or too little litigation, and you're not gonna argue somebody out of whatever their, their, their core beliefs are on this. But, um, you know, the government doesn't bring a lot of monopolization cases. They're hard, they take a lot of time and resources, and I'm proud of the fact that the Justice Department and the FTC are each looking at certain of the uh, large tech platforms to decide what to do. In addition, the FTC has just issued what amounts to an administrative subpoena to, um, uh, the large tech companies to report information about all the small acquisitions that they've done over the years that don't have to be reported, don't usually get reviewed because they're under the size threshold, but to look at the cumulative effect of that. So, you know, the government has some, a lot of tools that the, the private parties don't have. I'm not at all suggesting that you really want private lawsuits to break up companies. That's a pretty important public policy um, thing. And a, it, theoretically, a court can do it in either a public or private case. It's highly unlikely that a class action will get any injunctions beyond stop illegal conduct and pay us money. And it sets a dangerous precedent, too. Yeah. I mean, by and large, if you're going to order Microsoft to be divested, you want kind of the federal government, you know, uh, bringing that case uh, versus versus other, other enforcers. Sure. However, the federal agencies have their own agendas some of which are driven by, I would say, more ideology than by politics. So for example, there's a really ugly fight going on right now between literally the, the, the FTC that has won a case um, against Qualcomm for monopolization of the chips and the, the, the patents that relate to um, critical uh, technology for cell phones. Uh, they won, and the case is on appeal. It's actually being argued, I think, today while we're, while we're recording this. Great day for antitrust, by the way. Google is uh, having its hearing in Europe on its appeal of various of this abuse of dominance. Qualcomm is out in the Ninth Circuit arguing uh, the appeal against the FTC order and uh, less, uh, less enforcement-oriented uh, the decision in the Sprint T-Mobile, all sort of happening in this 24-hour period. And we're going to touch on that, but, of course, most importantly, we're here. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what, what's crazy about the Qualcomm case is while the FTC has won in, in the lower court and we'll, won't learn for months what the result is in the Ninth Circuit, the Justice Department has weighed in uh, on the Qualcomm side and said, in our view, the entire theory of the case is simply wrong and you should uh, dismiss it for this reason and that reason. And it's, it's kind of technical. And, you know, the these cases, unfortunately, are really long. The, uh, the, uh, you know, the decision in the Qualcomm case that's being appealed is something like uh, 200 some pages and the decision in Sprint T-Mobile is about 160. So, you know, these are big, and, and, and the Google thing was hundreds of pages in Europe. And it's, so, of, co it's of course very light, you know, easy to digest reading. Oh yeah, yeah, good, <laughs> good times, better, better than the, ne uh, the, ne the last John Grisham novel, uh, <laughs> but uh, better for, you know, putting yourself to bed <laughs> to sleep at night. So, you know, there's just really a lot going on, um, but federal agencies each have their own different set of incentives for bringing these cases. And right now, um, uh, there are just different incentives going on. Sometimes they just align. The FTC and the DOJ usually do a good job of staying out of each other's hair. By and large, they look at different industries based on their history and experience and how much expertise they have. Um, so like in healthcare, the FTC tends to do the pharmaceutical cases and the uh, DOJ tends to do the medical device cases that, that, that raise antitrust problems. But here they're going to war. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned 
that uh, you have good-hearted people using an, uh, a somewhat outmoded set of legal principles being narrowly interpreted by the courts to look at companies that have achieved a form of lasting dominance where uh, you, know, you can't be really assured for a variety of reasons. Once you establish kind of a, a dominant platform, it is very hard for new entrants to come in and take anything but a little fringe, uh, a niche uh, a, a away from them. So you know, uh, we can talk about what is free and what isn't free. What, what, what I can tell you is, yeah, it's not really technically hard to establish a social network. Uh, I don't have the software capability to know how to code that. Um, but, but plenty of people do, and it doesn't require a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of money or a lot of t technical time. But that it doesn't make you Facebook. Right. Um, nobody is going to give up Facebook if they are so inclined because of what economists call the network effects. You're on it because everybody else is on it that you care about. And you may love knitting more than anybody else in the world, but, and there's a really good social network for knitters, uh, but that's not going to be a replacement for Facebook. That's going to be a, a separate side gig that you do to post you know, your, your knitting projects and get, get advice about how to make a better sweater. Uh, I'm not sure how in our first meeting you knew that I was such a, a profound <laughs> fan of knitting, but that's, that's awesome. There so. you go. So, you know, I think um, there, there's a, a, a pattern of concern, and there should be an antitrust. When a, a firm has a, a serious dominant position that is persisting over time and uh, then takes actions that have some meaningful effect on the ability of existing or new competitors to stay in the market or enter the market or continue to innovate or, or, or depriving consumers of what they want, that's when you want to think about who is going to bring the right case, who has the incentives, who has the resources, uh, what are the right remedies to be. And I think um, Microsoft got it right as to the theories of liability on how competition is being harmed by the various present and future rivals being excluded and then got it wrong on the remedy, and as a result, uh, even for hard drives, uh, you know, Microsoft is still a dominant player. And I would say that uh, if it weren't for that case, you wouldn't have these robust uh, web-based platforms at all. You'd have some kind of Microsoft proprietary network, which is what they were hoping to achieve until antitrust slowed them down enough to let the real innovative parts of Silicon Valley emerge. So maybe this, this conversation isn't so much how do we break these companies up as much as it is how do we slow them down. Well, it's both. <clears throat> it's, um, you know, what's the right remedy if you, if you believe that there's been a violation? Um, and there are, you know, there, there are lots of large companies that, that, first of all, don't have any power. So, you know, I want to emphasize that uh, people who write about, um, you know, uh, how big these companies are, are are missing a piece of the puzzle. The, the Mercedes, Chrysler, Dodge car company that's now possibly being acquired by Renault or, or somebody else mm -hmm. is enormous. It's, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of sales. It has no important power. It doesn't have the power to raise price. It doesn't really have the power to exclude other car companies. So, you know, from a Section 2 of the Sherman Act, big company, don't care. Don't care very much until some facts emerge to the, to the contrary. Um, these are companies that are getting the scrutiny they deserve because they have the power by themselves to harm competition, then it becomes a fact question of what's their dominance, what are they doing, how do you put your finger on the harm? And then and obviously, what, what do you do about it? Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's what do you do about it is what allows us to have this conversation. One thing I think that is important to contextualize here is, and, and you've mentioned it you know, in, a number of times in, in our conversation, how do we make sure that these costs, so if it's in the car industry, 
Um, and we're going to get to T-Mobile Sprint here in a minute. Um, but if it's phone service, if it's oil, whatever it is in this antitrust question, how do we make sure that the price on consumers is still controllable? And obviously power is, is a component of this. Um, but when we're talking about Facebook, that's a free platform. And Amazon, you know, we pay up $100 a year to have Amazon Prime. And, and Google, you know, you, you, all you need is internet access. Um, how do we reconcile that with the fact that, you know, they do have such a profound market share? Okay, so a couple things. One is price is important, but it's not the only thing. Um, any uh, unilateral conduct, you know, single firm conduct that harms price or the amount that's produced or the quality of what's produced or uh, the choices that consumers want to exercise or uh, innovation or degrade your privacy, which we care about, uh, you know, a great deal. Um, all of those potentially fit within the, the domain of antitrust. I also want to just push back a little bit that, that this is all free. Um, first of all, on the consumer side, um, it's f free in the sense of we're, we're not paying uh, in, in, in coin uh, for the, you know, the privilege of setting up a, f a Facebook page and giving them all the information that they then monetize. However, we're paying for it in, in information, and Tim Wu is a professor at Columbia um, a very fine uh, advocate and, and scholar in this area, says we pay with our attention even more than with our information. They're buying our eyeballs. They're buying our time on the platform. Um, so there is a price. But there's also um, another side of most of these platforms, the advertising side, where they're paying a traditional price. They're paying through the nose. If you are engaged in web advertising, you don't really have a choice of, uh, and you really can't get away from some combination of Facebook and Google. You may also, for depending on the business you're in, have to advertise in other, uh, other types of online and offline advertising. So if you're, if you're advertising um, uh, you know, a play, you're producing a Broadway play, a musical or whatever, uh, you may want to advertise on TV. You may want to advertise on the radio. You may want to buy a billboard over a railroad you know, overpass, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in order to reach the demographics that need to see your stuff five, six, seven times to shell out the money to go to whatever your show is, you're going to have to advertise targeted audiences, usually behaviorally targeted advertising, which means you're doing Google on the search side and Facebook and, 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 and some combination thereof. And those people pay a, a great deal. So there are ways of explaining what the harm is for both the advertising side and on the consumer side. So for example, this is Germany, not the United States. I don't know for sure that this theory would fly in the US. There's a pending case in Germany where Facebook has been held to have um, abused its dominant position by degrading user privacy, by essentially promising them a certain level. And as they've maintained their dominance, just um, broken that promise and, and used their information for purposes that they either said they weren't or never said that they would. Well, so, you know, you mentioned here, you push back on me, and I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I understand from my um, prior work experience that when you're building an advertising campaign for anything, I mean, I worked in healthcare, um, and we would advertise emergency rooms on Facebook and using Google AdWords and things like that. I mean, it's, it's unavoidable, to your point. But at what point can big tech like Google, like Facebook, come back and say, well, you know, you've agreed to use our services, and part of that bargain that we've entered into is you have sacrificed a certain threshold of your data. And, and by using our platform, um, you know, you knew coming in, we were going to use your data. 
Um, and, and people like Andrew Yang, who, you know, just dropped out of the presidential race, um, have have advocated for things like people owning and controlling their data with some kind of monetary value. There are things like that. But uh, is it really worth breaking up these companies or slowing them down or whatever just because they are capitalizing on our data? You know, so so the easiest ways to deal with companies that have abused their power. So there, there's some push, again, involving Facebook, which has acquired over the years uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. And so a company whose power is acquired by mergers can be dealt with by simply forcing them to divest what they acquired. In fact, that, that's part of the history of Standard Oil. Uh, they did put a lot of companies out of business. They also bought a lot of their competitors. And, and part of the remedy was spinning back off some of the things that they had acquired. You could do that very relatively easily with Facebook, particularly because until recently, they have kept those companies relatively separate as, a, uh, as a three operating entities and are just starting to kind of intermix them. Sure. Uh, it's harder with a Google, uh, which is more or less a, a unitary company, but it had, parts of it have been built through hundreds and hundreds of acquisitions. Um, but there are ways of dealing with it. One of the issues that was on the table in Microsoft was that you could create essentially two Microsofts. Uh, one that would be the operating system, and one, you know, which was kind of like a monopoly, almost you'd end up treating it kind of like a, like, a, like a, the phone company or the electrical company. Um, but then you'd, you'd split off the operating company from the applications, the app. Uh, so essentially, Office, Word, Excel, all those things would be in right. one company, and then the uh, operating system, Windows, would be in another. And that would take away the incentives almost overnight to use your power over operating systems to mess with your competition in applications and web-based things. So th there, there are ways of doing that with Google. You could separate search from certain other things, particularly where you could either be a platform or you could be a seller is one of the proposals that I've seen. Um, and again, that's a big deal. There's pluses and minuses, and, and there, we'd be imposing some costs. And the question is, would the benefits we're likely right. to get outweigh the costs that could be incurred? Um, so. There are ways of dealing with this. You don't just whack up companies because they're big. You think about, can you cure the problem through injunctions? Can you say, this is illegal conduct, stop it? The problem is, uh, some people call it monopoly broth, monopoly stew. There's a point at which all the things that Microsoft did contributed to its continuing dominance. And most of them were illegal, but some of them weren't. But when you combine it with the ones that were, it prevented um, impenetrable barriers to actual and potential competition. The same might be true about Google. So there's a point at which if you can't come up with the right injunction and monitor it and make sure they're actually living with it, then you have to think about, all right, what is the minimum surgical kind of operation you then do to divest, excise, break up, uh, et cetera. And you know, we didn't break up Microsoft. We did break up the phone system. And as a result, you got a more robust long distance uh, competition and a quicker emergence of mobile, uh, mobile and cellular technology. Um, and again, I don't know that all the things that we have that are fairly available to us on, uh, on cell phones as data devices and, 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 and old fashioned telephones, I'm not sure they would have emerged in the variety and the speed that they did had the Bell system not been broken up by agreement with the government in the 80s, where again, the idea was separate the regulated part, where they would continue to be at least a regional monopoly, 
until cell phones came in uh, from the uh, um, from all the long distance where there was competition at the time. So that's a, that provides a perfect segue, you know, mentioning the development of mobile technology and all these things into how do we modernize the antitrust laws for today? And I think um, this sort of provides us an opportunity to sort of round out this conversation, um, bearing in mind that, you know, there are antitrust cases that do seem daunting. And, and as you mentioned, uh, these surgical operations of sorts can be um, a little a, a little overwhelming and sort of unfathomable when it comes to these companies like Facebook, even if it's as simple as undoing these mergers with, with Instagram. I mean, we sort of alluded to generically T-Mobile and Sprint in this context in terms of, um, you know, big mergers that are happening um, in today's context. So bearing in mind T-Mobile and Sprint, and, and you've alluded to Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, those types of mergers, how do we modernize the antitrust law to reflect today's market realities? Well, there's really two paths. In the United States, antitrust, because of how general the, the law is, you know, it prohibits monopolization, it prohibits agreements and restraint of trade, it prohibits mergers and acquisitions, which may tend to reduce competition. Super broad concepts filled in by the courts. You need better law, you need better court decisions. Um, I'm not a fan right now of the, uh, the T-Mobile uh, Sprint decision that just came out in the last 24, 48 hours for reasons we can talk about. But you need a sustained program of public and private litigation. You probably need a differently composed Supreme Court over time um, to, to change the law. Now, the other way to change the law um, has its own hurdles, but it's starting, the proposals are starting to happen, which is there are individual and comprehensive plans being proposed by candidates and to some extent already being introduced into Congress that would just say, you know, enough. Um, if the law says a merger is illegal if it may tend to reduce competition, that doesn't mean that the plaintiff has to show that it's almost certain. Um, may is a probability, and one could argue the Supreme Court and the lower courts over the years have just gotten that wrong. And uh, Congress has the ability to say, no, you know, may is defined as X. The court should, must consider this. It may not consider that. If there's harm to competition, you can't balance that with efficiencies. I mean, you can do whatever you want. There's, there's some proposals that, that would do various things. So uh, Congress can um, intervene. And I'm, I'm thrilled that they're debating or beginning to debate and talk about and hold hearings on legislation and issues that really matter. Um, Congress has a million things to do. I don't want to pretend that antitrust should be at the top of, uh, of the list. Um, but if you're going to pay attention to antitrust, pay attention to the things that matter. Pay attention to whether our merger policy is or isn't good. Don't worry about like whether the government got it wrong in one case or you're mad that uh, there's some local company that used to be headquartered in your city that got acquired by you know, a firm in Chicago or New York or LA or whatever. Um, don't, you know, yes, focus on whether uh, these tech giants do or don't violate the law in some important way. And I, I commend the House Judiciary Committee, I believe it is, that's conducting a really detailed, um, subpoena-driven investigation into what's going on in the, in the tech world. Don't waste your time, as Congress has done in the past, on having the ninth hearing on whether baseball should or shouldn't be exempt from the antitrust <laughs> laws. That's just, that's just small beer versus you know, what really matters in the, you know, the 21st century. Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm hard-pressed to believe that Congress would ever waste their time on anything. Um, but you know, you, you've used some verbiage throughout our conversation, serious, meaningful effect, um, in terms of are these big companies having a serious and meaningful effect? Give the listeners a little background, if, if you don't mind, as to this, this decision of the T-Mobile 
sprint case that you're not a fan of? And then how can we, how could that have been tweaked um, to fit a more modern mold? Yeah, so um, in, in, you know, in the cell phone market, there's competition at both the national level and at the local level. So, you know, we all tend to buy, I mean, we're all, we all live somewhere. Uh, in, in, in the, we live in the Chicago metropolitan area, which is its own sort of cell phone market. But we're also part of a larger um, a national market, and particularly businesses buy phones f for, for national coverage, and individuals travel um, for business and pleasure all the time. So the, the, you want to see the effect of this kind of a merger, a merger between a third and fourth place company in a market dominated by two larger companies of Verizon and, and AT&T. And so uh, y you look at not just the market shares, but um, uh, you know, how competition has worked uh, and, and how it's likely to work after this merger. And the, the parties are telling two different stories, essentially. The, the uh, plaintiffs, so initially the Justice Department and the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, review this merger. The FCC reviews it both under a broader public interest standard as a telecom regulator and also for effects on competition and works in conjunction with the Department of Justice, which really only has a competition focus. And, the, and you sort of look at, so the basic story is when this market moves from four to three meaningful national cell phone companies, what's the likely effect? Crystal ball, it's hard. Uh, predictions, particularly about the future, are, you know, are really hard. Um, the, um, so one way of looking at this is the market shares and the degree of concentration, the shrinking number of national providers, uh, suggests that prices are going to go up, innovation is going to go down, uh, particularly because T-Mobile was the, sort of the what they call in antitrust the maverick. They were the ones offering more data at lower prices, uh, advertising in ways that were kind of funny and insulting to their larger competitors. Sure. Um, and you know, if you add, it's a real serious question. It's a fact question. When you add Sprint to T-Mobile, and Sprint was not failing, but was flailing in different ways and not as successful as it as it could be, and lagging in some ways. When you put those two companies together, do you get a meaningful th number three that can compete with the big two, or do you just get a more concentrated, less competitive uh, likelihood of higher prices, lower choice, and sort of a live and let live attitude where I, no one thinks they're going into a room and just hashing out a price fixing thing. Sure. But they follow what each other does in the market, and there's a tendency in markets with high entry barriers and low number of competitors not to rock the boat. So that's what's going on. DOJ and FCC approve this merger subject to a condition that the, the companies have to sell off a bunch of assets to DISH, which is a satellite um, TV provider, with some plans to enter the cell phone market but have never done so in the past in any important way. Um, and now they're going to, in the DOJ's view, um, be become this fourth competitor preserving competition in the marketplace. Uh, these kinds of consent decrees have to be approved by, by a district court, and that, that's still pending. But the states, the attorney generals that we talked about said, that's not good enough. We have a serious problem, and they have the right to sue even though the Justice Department believes it's okay to settle. So they brought their own case against T-Mobile and, and, and uh, Sprint. That case just came to a conclusion, and uh, uh, it was a bench trial, so the judge needs time to process all the things, and th that opinion just dropped in the last uh, day or so, about 180 pages, where the judge more or less down the line took the defendant's view that um, 
this is going to be great for consumers. It's going to facilitate the rolling out of 5G. T-Mobile is going to be as disruptive as ever. Sprint was a failing competitive force in the marketplace, so it wasn't a big player. And basically said, oh, pro, uh, you know, no likely, some likelihood of harm, strong evidence of efficiencies, strong evidence of Sprint not being a, an important player as the years went by. Uh, roll out the dish um, is likely to maintain competition. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a hard opinion to uh, appeal because it's very fact and credibility based. But um, I read it as a judge bending over backwards not to rock the boat where <clears throat> the two agencies that he thinks are having the primary responsibility think it's okay to settle in this way. So uh, on top of that being a, a perfect summary of this 180-page opinion that admittedly you are the only person in this room of two people that has read. Um, do you think, and I think this provides us a really uh, great opportunity to sort of tie all these pieces together here, this sort of uh, mindset of we're going to, as, as the judicial branch, bend over backwards for these big companies, is that sort of indicative of what we should expect to see as it pertains to big tech? Or do you think these conversations that are starting to surface on the floor of the house, like you mentioned, and um, like we've talked about, you know, relevant to these presidential yeah. candidates, is that going to sort of shift that paradigm um, and really reframe antitrust? Well, I mean, I hope so, but I mean, it's it's a split Congress, you know, between a Republican-controlled Senate and a, and a democratically-controlled House. So the chances of big legislation that sweepingly revise um, the antitrust framework that we've been discussing are, you know, are just not that likely to pass depending on whatever happens in, in, in 2020. What I do think could happen is some targeted legislation that would put together a really funky but interesting coalition of progressives and conservatives who are mad about different things for different reasons and perhaps get some White House support. So it's possible that could happen in the merger area. Um, and it's possible and likely that'll happen in some important areas that relate to pharmaceutical companies and, and uh, more agreements that they enter into where branded companies, branded, pharmaceut uh, branded pharmaceutical makers, enter into agreements and other kinds of conduct that keep generic competitors out of the market. It's called pay for delay, reverse payments. Uh, there, there's other names for s some of these techniques. Now that's a, because that's a hot button issue, right? It's hard to explain, it takes a while, like we've been talking for a half hour, 40 minutes. It's hard to explain all the ins and outs of a cell phone merger or why Google is or isn't likely to harm competition in the way it does business. Um, when you tell people pharmaceuticals are, cost too much, it, it gets people's attention. Right. And if there's an antitrust solution to one of the reasons why pharmaceutical prices remain high, uh, apparently the, the, the empirical stuff I've read suggests that the one biggest indicator of when prices drop is when one or more generic enters uh, come into the market. It's why when you get an antibiotic, uh, just a broad spectrum general antibiotic, it's like 12 cents a pill. Right. Um, and um, so, you know, I think a, a bill that deals with that, uh, particularly in a presidential year, uh, particularly where um, from time to time our president has talked about these very same issues from his first campaign and he generally agrees that somebody ought to do something and the details of, you know, never emerge. Um, that's the kind of bill that could pass through this kind of complicated um, narrow bipartisan pathway to get to a president's desk who wants to look like he's not um, harming health care. Uh, you know, and I, I could see that happening. Do I see uh, a large comprehensive package, a much tougher road to hoe? Um, you know, there's a, a proposal 
that Senator Warren, uh, th this press out that, that she's been working on for a long time, it hasn't been introduced yet. So um, again, that would be kind of the likely to be the broadest range of uh, proposals out there. But it gets people talking. And the, the biggest difference is, in my mind, and I think this is healthy, and I think it's pro-democracy for a reason I, I can tell you, but I think it's really healthy that the topic has moved from that of just technocratic experts in the shadows to uh, just broader civic discourse like this in the papers and the talk shows and all the other things where people are, you know, are talking at different levels of sophistication uh, about these issues. And I think that's great. I agree. And, and even if you're not a legal scholar in the field of antitrust, these conversations are becoming relevant because they do affect consumers, whether it's big tech, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's your cell phone. I mean, these are all um, really, really relevant things. Yep. And also big ag and, you know, a lot of other issues are, are, are getting some political salience. And, you know, I, I want to end just on the theme that I write a lot about antitrust and democracy. And, and the reason I think of it in those terms is, you know, having taken con law and, and just you know, general civics, that you know, we have three branches of government because we believe in the separation of powers and we believe that um, not creating a monopoly on, in, in terms of public, um, public power is good. Competition's good. Competition between the courts, Congress, and the executive. Maintain a, a respect for rights that having a, a completely unified single government would be problematic. I view the antitrust laws as the private equivalent where we agree, it, we believe in the private sector. We don't want a single powerful force or set of forces dictating policy. We want to have separation of power. We want to have competition. And uh, also that a healthy competition in the private sphere uh, creates better results in the private, in the public sphere and not having one uh, type of power capture or work in consort with the other. So I like having a multiplayer decentralized economy for the same reason I like having a multi-branch, somewhat decentralized government, even though sometimes it's messy on both ends. Well, Professor Waller, you are, we, we could keep doing this for hours, but I am so grateful that you joined us on the podcast today and, and um, obviously, we are so grateful for your time. So thank you so much for oh, being here. Oh, thank you. You guys are doing a great job. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible, and thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Pot and Kitten.